I'm really excited for Chucker's podcast this week. Um, he's got John Wilcom, who did Walk On Warrior. If you haven't checked out that podcast, he interviewed him quite a while ago. Uh, but that was a great interview. And this time he's got John back with Travis Diener, who helped take that D. Wade Marquette team to the final four. He had an amazing pro career. Um, it's just an, a great storyteller about his time in basketball, playing in the NBA, playing on that Marquette team, playing overseas in Italy. Just a lot of fun to listen to their conversation. We also wrapped up our Pioneers uh, collection, the Celebrating Black History, over the last month and had so many fun interviews. If you haven't got a chance to check those out, we had Jesse Washington starting the week and we the, the month and we ended with the Globetrotters, uh, Thunder Law, breaking 11 Guinness uh, World Records. So lots of great interviews. Uh, thanks for joining us. And now let's get on to the interview. John Travis, thanks for joining us here on the 99 Podcast. Pleasure to be with you, Chucker. Looking forward to it. Happy to be on. All right, cool. So, fellas, March Madness is already upon us, uh, the greatest time of year. How are we feeling about college hoops this time of year? Does it bring up good memories, painful memories, or a bit of a mixed bag? What do you guys got to say about that there? Brings up great memories for me. I mean, the fact that uh, Marquette is having the season that they're having, I think they ranked 11th, you know, as of as of today. Um just having an amazing season. They're right on the cusp of, of hopefully winning a, a big East regular season title. And we'll see if they can translate that into the tournament. But um, as a, as a Marquette alum and obviously a lifelong fan, it's been fun to watch their development under Shaka. Yeah. Cool. What about you, Travis? What does this type of year, time of year kind of stir in you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the best time of the year. Uh, you know, this is when it, it uh, you know, there's only a few weeks left in the season and then, you know, every game seems to matter a little more come the end of February, early March. We get in conference tournament time and then obviously the uh, the big dance. So uh, back from my playing days, you know, it, when I was at Marquette, there's a lot of great memories uh, from March and also some some disappointing memories, which uh, I think is the life of many college basketball players. You know, you take the good with the bad, but ultimately, you know, it's 20 years uh, to to the season that, you know, we had that magical run to the, to the tournament. So it's been a a good uh, run down memory lane here the past couple months. Yeah. Cool, man. Hard to believe 20 years goes quick. Doesn't it? Doesn't it, man? So uh, you two were teammates at Marquette, John the walk-on, Travis the star guard. Um, what was the relationship like between the two of you back then? Yeah, it's funny because um, I played Division II basketball my freshman year and then transferred and, you know, pretty much at that point was going to give up playing and ended up working some Marquette summer camps and um, would scrimmage with the guys occasionally and then eventually um, was asked to be on the team and, you know, really was given one direction, which was just to do anything in my power to make Travis better in practice. And I think uh, a lot of walk-ons probably get that request, which is, you know, don't hurt them, push them hard. But at the end of the day, it's like, that's your, your contribution to, to wins in the program. And so, um, you know, for me, it was a real pr- privilege being around someone as, um, as good as Travis was at that point. Um, you're around a guy like that, that is as good as he was at, at that point in his career. I think his junior season, he was one of 
a couple players to average like 18 and eight in the country. And so to come off a junior season like that, um, to be kind of on everyone's radar as a senior, have the ball in his hands. Um, and we had a, we had a young team kind of around Travis. Um, you know, there was probably even more pressure on his shoulders to perform. And, and he certainly did that. Travis, he said his job, John said his job was to push you, but not hurt you. How do you do? Well, I, I got hurt my senior year, so, <laughs> but it was not because of him. It was because of my own, uh, misfortune, but you know, there's always, for, for me, there was always a lot of respect for the walk-ons because, you know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't come with a lot of notoriety and they're in there to make, you know, us better knowing that they're, they're not going to play many minutes, uh, when the lights are the brightest. So, um, you know, I always had a great relationship with walk-ons only because I saw myself in, in that type of work. Um, I never saw myself, I think, as a uh, an All-American type player. I think I had to have a certain work ethic with, you know, my stature and who I was as a player that, you know, a lot of the, the walk-ons that came through the program that come through Division One uh, are there uh, because they love basketball. Uh, they have no uh, dreams of, of really playing a lot of minutes but they're there to make us better and that's a selfless act and so uh always appreciated uh those guys pushing me uh, to be to be a better player So let's get right into it. John, the book is No Fear in the Arena, Travis Diener's Unrivaled Leadership and Competitive Drive. It dropped last December. What about Travis's story was so compelling that you wanted to write a book about it? Yeah, I think for me, I was kind of a stumbled into authorship. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a journalist by trade like you are. I never thought I would write, you know, a book, much less two. That, that kind of all goes away when you're writing about something that's personal to you, um, about someone that, that you know. Um, Travis and I grew up a couple hours from each other. Um, you know, there were games even before Travis and I played together that, you know, I attended even as a fan. Um, and so there, there was a lot there. And I think one of the things that to me makes this book just, just so fun to read is we interviewed a lot of people. And so, you know, originally this was like going to be written. Um, I was going to be Travis. I was going to almost ghostwrite it for him as him. And as you know, you know, that's hard to do when you, every time you write something, you're like, is this really like what Travis would have said or how he felt about this? And so it's tough to write a biography or autobiography that way. Um, and so we pivoted and we ended up interviewing, I don't know, probably 20, 25 people. And one of the best things about, you know, hardwood history and just basketball in general is when you hear the enthusiasm in some of these people's voices telling stories from 15, 20, 25 years ago about, you know, certain moments in the gym, uh, different atmospheres overseas, you know, certain NBA games, et cetera. Um, and that ultimately makes it really fun as a writer, because I'm thinking, I know exactly where this is going to go in the book or how to piece this together. Um, but that was really a, really a real treat for me. And so do you have the, you have the idea for the book and then it, you go to Travis with it, or how does that, how did that kind of the inspiration, the light bulb come to be, so to speak? Yeah, so I had the idea for the book just because um, Travis's career, number one, has lasted a tremendously long time. Um, you know, Travis hit a shot to win a million dollars three years ago in the TBT. Most people don't know that, but if you're watching that on ESPN, um, it's like, is this guy still playing basketball? Um, and this is after the NBA. This is after playing in Italy. 
This is obviously after playing with me and Marquette. And so there's just so much more to all of that. And anytime you've been around the game as a professional for, you know, 16, 17 years, um, I really wanted to dig into that and knowing, uh, where Travis came from and certainly where he got to, um, made for a really interesting story. And so Travis, John comes to you says, Hey man, I'd love to write a book about you. Did you have reservations about that or were you kind of all in from the get go? No, I wouldn't. I don't think I was all in right away. I think, uh, you know, what John alluded to earlier was, you know, we had a major pivot early on in the process only because uh, John had written probably, what, 30 or 40 pages uh, coming from from me. And when I read that, while he did a great job doing it, it just didn't feel like it was, it was authentic enough to come from me. So we made the pivot. I said, uh, I kind of told John, look, if, if we're going to do this, I think the, the best I'd, idea is to to get kind of the 15 to 20 most influential people that have been around me through my journey and let's talk to them and they can give you stories and I can kind of give you, uh, you know, what I thought when I was going through this whole process, but I think it'd be better coming from other people. So, uh, that's when I really got on board and, you know, he, he contacted me, uh, right after the bubble. So that was in 2020 about the book. And obviously we just published it, uh, you know, couple months ago. So John, what was the big thing that you really wanted to communicate and sharing Travis's story? What did you really want to get at here? Yeah. So, I mean, I think any, any good book, it's ultimately like, okay, this is cool, but like what's in it for, not for me, but for the reader, you know, what can people take from this? And I think what you see in a lot of these stories is just, there really is like an unrivaled competitiveness from a very young age. And so you talk to Travis's parents, you talk to his sisters, you talk to his uncles. Um, you know, there, there's stories that I just, it's like, Hey, here's $10 for Christmas, but, um, I'm going to take it away unless you go outside and hit eight out of 10 free throws in you know, the middle of December. Um, there was just a, there was a, an unbelievable competitive drive kind of within this family and you see it come out, um, in a lot of, you know, fun ways. And obviously that translated to the court as well. But I think one of the most fascinating parts about this whole book is, you know, Travis grew up down the street from his cousin, Drake. Drake started the Paul, same time period, same age. Um, and the fact that these guys go in different directions as professionals, you know, and then eventually, you know, in their late 20s, 30s, team up to really form one of the elite backcourts in Europe. Um, that's a pretty special thing when you grow up in a town of, you know, 25,000 people in Wisconsin. Um, to be playing, you know, at that type of level in Italy. Um, and, you know, Travis said his, that his jersey retired there. I think Drake's the all-time leading scorer in the Italian league. So these guys weren't just just cousins playing well. You know, they were playing some of the best basketball that had ever been played in Italy. Yeah, exactly how you and Drake drew it up, right, Travis? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk about Travis's story. You know, for both of you here, you know, what are some of the key stories that you feel really exemplify this book's theme, its mission? Just what are some of the fun stories you think that really kind of kind of characterize who Travis is and what he's about? You know, high school, college, when he's younger to the Italian League, just what are some of those stories that you think are really kind of fun to, re you were you were really happy to tell and fun to dig into and fun to kind of reminisce about? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, it was interesting uh, and a lot of fun just 
remembering some of these things coming from other people that I kind of, you know, when I went through, I just never paid attention. I didn't, I didn't, I was kind of seeing it through how they saw it, which is totally different than probably how I saw it. And I was just being who I was, which was kind of, I think, maniacal in terms of competition and taking everything uh, extremely serious when it came to competition. Um, you know, the, the, the this the john what john was talking about about the christmas with drake that was drake you know my uncle would give him 10 bucks and if if he went out and made nine out of ten free throws my uncle would double the ten dollars to 20 if you made less than then you'd take the money um to take the money back so it's it's a little i mean it was it was as simple as that i think the one story that was uh kind of fitting for our family was uh I forget what holiday it was, but it was, we always went to my grandma's house who was literally like six houses down from where I lived. So spent a lot of time in my grandma's house who's still alive over a hundred years old, but we played this game called spoons. It's this card game and everyone in the family would, would play. And if you lost, I mean, it was, it was Christmas now. Cause now it makes sense. If you lost, the loser had to go sit on the porch in, in the, in the cold, in the snow. And you know, the game would take a while because there's probably 30 people playing. So it ended up, you know, you didn't want to lose early. So it ended up being me and my sister at the, the final two. And at the final two is basically just luck. It's the first one to get like four of a kind is going to grab the spoon and you're going to win. Uh, but I think my sister got four of a kind first and she kind of reached to touch the spoon. And I kind of just jumped on the table and the table just, you know, broke in half. So it was kind of, uh, that's a funner story you know, fun story to tell. Uh, but there was still some like, I, I'm not going to lose to my sister. I'm not, I'm trying to win this, but it was, you know, the fact that a, a table was broken in my grandma's house uh, kind of uh, shows the competitiveness, not just for me, but my whole family. When did you realize if I could, let's stick on that theme. Like when did you realize maybe you were cut from a different cloth in that regard? compared to some of your peers, especially in, in the basketball sense? Was it high school? Was it a little later on? Like, when did you realize, like, I'm a well, little I think different. it was earlier than that. I, I think you can tell, like, you know, you're 10, 11 years old and you play basketball games and it, and it, you know, you get so uh, caught up in the game and the emotion of it and it, it, it pains you to lose. And then you see how other kids react to winning and losing. And you're like, well, why don't they care not that they didn't care as much, but they weren't showing that they cared. So it made me feel like, okay, well, they don't care as much. And it probably was, you know, a lot to, to do with, you know, I put, and, and I'd go with a lot of a lot of the, my cousins and, and my sisters, we put a lot of time into basketball. So naturally, when you put a lot of time into something, it should mean a lot. And these other kids weren't doing that. So why would it mean as much? But when you're young, even when I was in college, it, it was hard for me to uh, relate to to other opponents or players that didn't take basketball as serious or take winning and losing as serious as I did. So I think I felt at a young age, uh, I was extremely competitive, almost to a point where, you know, outside the basketball court, I was I was ultra competitive uh, in things that really didn't mean anything. And that's when it's like, holy, holy shit, this guy is a little, he's a little crazy. You know, John, from the competitiveness of Travis is kind of the overarching theme of the book. And so give me a story that you think really kind of exemplifies Travis's competitiveness and really kind of hits at that. So uh, Travis was playing in Italy and they were playing as part of the Euro cup in, uh, in Belgrade, Serbia. 
probably one of the most raucous environments in the world uh, based on all the people that I talked to, multiple leagues, people in different parts of, of the of the of the world, really. And, um, you know, Travis's cousin Drake told me that he had played there a couple times and was literally escorted with, you know, police escorts, even like out of the airport and into a van and into the arena. And um, it's pretty serious stuff. But uh, Travis and team were playing there. I think Travis hits a shot right before halftime, tie the game. It's halftime. Okay. But everybody in the crowd just starts raining things down. You know, we're talking about uh, bottles and, you know, even things like car keys, basically whatever they can get their hands on. So it's just this, everything's coming down. <laughs> Travis's coaching staff, his team, everyone's yelling, like, get in the tunnel, get over here, you know, watch your heads. And uh, this guy just tells a story about how everyone's in this tunnel looking out. And there's one individual that is still standing at basically half court, like screaming at the fans, um, which is the third person on this on this call. And, um, I thought, you know, to me, this guy telling the story was basically like, you know, that moment I wanted to be that type of a competitor. Like, I wish I had that dog in me too, was his exact quote. And I thought, um, what a cool story to exemplify that. Obviously at the time it was probably a little scary and dangerous, but, um, you know, if you would have been there watching that from that tunnel, um, it's probably something you would have remembered, you know, 15 years later too. You know, I think you bring up a great thing, which is something I want to ask you about Travis is you have, competitiveness and with that comes aggressiveness and effort but it also has to be under control so how did you kind of find that balance between a guy who went a hundred miles an hour but yet there was still control to your game because you got to knock down those shots and you can't turn the ball over and so where was the line for you and how did you kind of find that balance yeah i mean i think i i, I pride i actually think i played better when i was uh angry i think i had a folk a more of a focus when i was mad so you'd, you'd create these like scenarios where, you know, even in your own mind, you kind of make yourself, I'd make myself angry at something, someone, somebody, maybe in this case of, uh, in, in Serbia, it was the fans. And I, because I think I just, I focused in better. Uh, that's why I always loved playing on the road because it was always, uh, you know, it was always amped up environment. I felt, uh, not as comfortable. Uh, so I think it was just different. Uh, to put myself in a place where I had some had a chip on my shoulder that was more anger than anything, and that's when I really felt like I was focused. And, and I don't think a lot of people are 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 better that way. I think a lot of people when they get angry, they they play worse. Um, I think I was just one of those guys. I, I had to have that chip, had to be, had to have a little, you know piss and vinegar in me to play at my highest level. Give me a sense of uh, your college career, Marquette. Is there an example that jumps out to mind where you say, here was an example where I had that anger, I had that piss and vinegar. It was this game. Well, it was actually, it was, it was, this probably is a, a good story. And I don't even think this was in the book, but I would just get so angry at, at things that you, you wouldn't even, shouldn't be angry about. So we were in a, we were in a drill and uh, we were playing two on two in in, in uh, practice, and I go in. I think my team's winning. I go in and I make a layup, and, and so I should be like, "Oh, I, we scored. I, I should be happy." But as the ball is going through the through the net, I grab it. I jump up and grab it, and I just throw it as hard as I can with with both hands. And Coach Crean is literally eight feet away from me, and it just hit some square in the nose 
sh- shatters his glasses. And, and at that point I'm like, I'm like, Oh shit. Like I'm, he's gonna, like, he's gonna, he's gonna kill me. And he kind of just like shook it off. And, but that it, it, I had no, I had no business getting angry. I had no business being mad. I just made a layup, but there's something like that. I just, uh, something probably led to that moment where I was still kind of angry and in the making the layup didn't even matter. I was just probably pissed off at something, somebody. And that was my, that was my release, I guess. So John, you've known Travis for a while, um, going back, you know, about 20 years. So what were you surprised to discover about him, especially as you really kind of dug into the story and you think, you know, someone, but then you start peeling back the layers and you get a little bit more context, a little bit more perspective. What were you surprised to learn about your buddy? I think one of the the biggest stories that sticks out to me is simply, you know, Travis had played it five years in the NBA. It's an amazing life. You know, you're a, you're a backup third, second, third string point guard, played some meaningful minutes in Indiana. And he had an opportunity to, to keep playing and not only keep playing, but potentially keep playing closer to home in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, rather than sign another NBA contract to to play spot minutes in a in a second or third string role, he basically said, "Hey, I'm 27 years old. I'm in the prime of my career. I want to go and play meaningful minutes and lead a team to a championship. And I'm going to go to Italy to do that." Um, I heard that and thought to myself, "Like, wait, what? Like, who who would do that? So you walked away from millions of dollars to go to go do that." And so to me, that just kind of exemplified, you know, we talked about just like love of the game, you know, why we, why do we even do this? Why am I up at three in the morning writing this book? You know, you do it because you love it. And I think, you know, that was one of those things that just, you know, it kind of touches your soul a little bit in terms of, um, I thought that was really cool. And obviously all the things that came after that, you know, that's a huge part of his life, of his career, of his legacy. Um, is what happened over in Italy, but that could have easily not happened as well. Um, if he would have, you know, would have stayed in the NBA and Travis, from your perspective, what went into that decision of the, of what John just recollect, uh, you know, recollected here could have stayed in the NBA, maybe been a second, third string guy, you know, could have had a nice, could a nice career, but you decided to go to Italy. What, what was that decision like for you? Yeah, I think we've, we've talked, you know, about my competitiveness, you know, for pretty much this whole interview and that it just came down to that. Like I wanted to. I wanted to play. I wanted to, I wanted to compete. I wanted to, uh, be put in a position where, you know, when I played in the game, if I played well or didn't play well, uh, that affected the outcome. And in the NBA, I was very, uh, honest and realistic with myself at at that time in my career, I I would, would have signed a a contract with the Bucks and I would have been the third string point guard. And you're not going to play meaningful minutes unless, you know, two things happen. One, uh, somebody gets hurt, which you're, you're never want to, you know, never cheering for, or somebody plays, plays bad and you're never cheering for that either as a teammate. So, uh, it was, it was actually, a, I think it, it sounds like a lot harder decision for, for most people, but for me, it was pretty easy. It was, it was time to go and, and play again and compete again. And, you know, as long as my wife was on board with, with that and she was, you know, all about it. So it made it really easy. You know, the only hard part was, you know, you're, you're going across the world. You don't know what to expect. You've never been there. You don't know what kind of situation you're getting yourself into. But fortunately for me, 
I kind of knew who the coach was going to be because my cousin had played for him, and that's all I need to hear. And and you know the rest kind of just took care of itself. Cool. So we've talked a little bit about you know early on in your life, Travis, um, into your college years, and then playing overseas. An effort like this stirs up um, a lot of rec- you know a lot of memories, good and bad. So what did this project kind of create for you? As John's digging into some of these parts of your life, what did it kind of how did it kind of resonate with you? Uh, well, I mean, first is it's very humbling. Uh, you know, when John reached out, uh, you know, about, you know, to, to think that you've had, you know, a career. And, and for me, it was like, I want this to be cool. Cause I, my kids can kind of read it and, and know exactly who I was as a, as a person, as a player. And that, that was the, the neat thing for me. It's like, it really wasn't about, you know, how many copies were going to be sold. It was more like I get to share this with my family. Um, and then reading these stories from people that have been so close to me in the way they saw things. And so at times it was, it was funny at times it was very emotional, uh, to hear what, you know, the people you love the most think about you and how they saw you in good times and in bad, uh, you know, was very, uh, it was a neat experience and something that, you know, without, you know, John doing this, you know, it would have, it would have never happened. Yes. Yeah, it's almost, uh, this sounds morbid, but it's almost like being present for your funeral, hearing what other people have to say about you, you know? And so I'm curious then, Travis, let's stick along that lines. What was something someone said about you? And you're like, I didn't know mom felt that way about me or coach felt that way about me or my teammate felt that way about me. It wasn't that really kind of jarred you a little bit. I think it was the overall collective uh, feeling of, of who I was as a, as a player and as a, as a person, as a competitor, I I always felt I was a certain way, but I always knew like I was hard to play with. Uh, I was hard on myself and to hear it, uh, when now that my career is over from the people that, you know, I was alongside with talk about, you know, who I was, you know, as a, as a leader, as a competitor, as somebody that they were going to battle with, uh, was very fulfilling for me. And that's the only reason, you know, I ever, probably the main reason I love playing basketball was, was that, that togetherness that, you know, the thing I miss the most about playing basketball is being in a locker room. It's not, it's not the game, so to speak. It's, it's going into the locker room before or after a big win or loss and and being part of something bigger than yourself. You know, you can't find that in, in a lot of areas of life where you can share such highs and lows with other people. And these are our jobs and, and you go into you know, you win a big game and, and everyone's happy and, and emotional. And then you lose a big one. And it's like, well, you know, that sucks, but you know, you're in it together. And, and then there's a feeling of, uh, there's a lot of just different feelings. And that, those are the things I kind of miss the most. Well, the book has been well received. It's a great story to share. I think you guys are onto something here and I think it's, it's important to highlight, you know, um, you know, tra- in many ways, Travis, you're kind of the everyman. I think represent a lot of us out there. You know, a six six foot dude who's jacking up shots. <laughs> so, I'm um, glad we're able to highlight the book here on the 199 podcast. Before we get out of here, Travis, uh, and specifically, I want to put you and the bright spotlight on you, Travis. John, jump in if you want here, but we want to hit you with some fast paced, run and gun style questions. All right, you ready? Who was the player you tried to pattern your game off of? Uh, for me, it was. Uh... It was Dan Dickow, who was uh, a few years older than me. I actually played him when I was a freshman at Gonzaga. Uh, Scott Skiles was another one, and Mark Price. Those are guys that I watch film. Uh, I watch film on throughout my college career, and kind of uh, had similar games to them. And guys, I tried to emulate in, in my in my play. 
favorite college arena you ever played in? Take Marquette, any Marquette arena off the table. Freedom Hall in in Louisville. Uh, they had a, they had Patino. They had really good teams when I was in college. We had a lot of success down there, but you know, twenty over twenty thousand people, rabid fan base, uh, electric atmosphere to play in. What about you, John? You've, when you were that walk on, what did you think? Like, well, this is a pretty cool place to be in. Yeah, I just love the stories from Louisville because uh, Louisville fans um, are enthusiastic, to put it lightly. And, um, you know, the fact that Travis's parents would drive from Wisconsin down there, watch the game, drive back, and his dad would go straight to work. Um, Travis actually never lost a game at Freedom Hall, which is pretty crazy considering every time they played, Louisville was ranked in the top 10, I think, all four years. Uh, well, we talked about the Louisville fans. What were the wildest fans you ever encountered? Well, John, John touched on it earlier. The fans in Belgrade for that game were – uh, it was what I did at halftime was, was stupid, stupidity at its finest. Um, but that's, you get caught up in the moment, moment you're kind of naive to what's going on. You, you don't think anything bad's going to happen because you're playing a basketball game, but then, you know, you look around and there's two to 300, uh, you know, military personnel there that are, you know, carrying, you know, heavy artillery. So it's like, uh, maybe I should have been a little smarter with uh, with how I was acting, but uh, it didn't work out. Anyways, we lost the game, so uh, that story uh, could have could have had a better ending. All right, you're part of that great Marquette Marquette uh, team that makes a Final Four run in 2003. There was a, a guard in that team named Dwayne Wade, not not too shabby. Had a nice career. What's your favorite memory of that Final Four run in, in 2003? Yeah, like I said, it's not it's not any particular game, any particular moment. It was it was the shared experiences. Actually, in the tournament, we didn't fly anywhere because we were we were uh, located so close for our our tournament game. So we took the bus from M- Milwaukee to Indianapolis for the first two games, and then. We took the bus from Milwaukee to Minneapolis for the for the Elite Eight, uh, the Sweet Sixteen and Elite Eight game. So uh, it was those stories that were told on, on the back of the bus, you know, joking with each other, making fun of each other, you know, just basketball players having fun. And those are the moments you miss the most. Those are the things you look back on. Obviously, you know, everybody remembers uh, certain games, uh, the Kentucky game. Uh, but for, for I think for most players, it's more about the experiences that you get to share with with one another. Yeah, I'm going to stick on this as a competitive guy, and we've talked about your competitive streak here. Was there a team you took a little extra juice in beating? Oh, Wisconsin, <laughs> for sure, <laughs> for sure. Gotcha. All right, I'm curious about a drill. You hold. Oh, let me back up here. You talk Wisconsin. Why Wisconsin? Did they not recruit you? Did they overlook you? Was that the school you wanted to no, go to? Why Wisconsin? No. no. <laughs> no, I, I had a scholarship offer from, I mean, it, it pretty much came down to Marquette or Wisconsin, you know, we're, we're 60 miles away. Um, you know, it's a great, they've had a lot of su- success, especially re- recently. Um, and just, you know, it's an, in, a lot of my friends went to Wisconsin. Uh, so it's like, uh, it was just one of those games that I circled on, on the calendar when, when the season came or, I mean, you always kind of knew when you're going to play them, but uh, just took a extra motivation that only because I knew I'd be seeing a lot of people that would talk about that game for the rest of my 
the rest of my career, the rest of my life. You know, I love it when a competitor doesn't hesitate whenever I ask that question. A game, a team you took a little extra pleasure in beating, because when you don't hesitate, that shows you're a competitor. I never buy the line like, oh no, every game's the same. It's just one of, you know, 20, no way. No, that, that one, that one, that one, no way, a little man. more. <laughs> All right. Give me a drill. I'm curious about this one. You know, I got a young little hooper in my household. Um, a drill you did, maybe a little bit early on in your game, you know, when you were maybe elementary school or so, a drill you did that you thought really improved your game and laid a great foundation. I was very, uh, the, the game is totally different now. These kids nowadays are so more, uh, so much more creative. They're so, they're more skilled than, than they ever been. Uh, so I was very basic with how I worked out. It was all, you know, the catch one dribble, right, pull up, catch one dribble, left, pull up, shot, fake, one dribble, right, shot, fake, one dribble, left. Um, those my my uncle would would lay out a a, a a shooting workout for me and my cousin Drake. Take us about an hour to do. He'd have all the the ten ten shots at all these spots. These are the things I want you to do, and that's all we did. And it it was it was boring. It was repetitive, but it was kind of why uh, both of us were so fundamentally sound in in playing basketball. And we weren't ever going to wow you with. Uh, these incredible, spectacular moments, uh, partly because, you know, we weren't playing above the rim. Uh, but, you know, we we're very technical in how we play. We, you know, didn't turn the ball over a lot, could shoot the ball. And, and that was a product of all the stuff, you know, starting when I was, you know, four, five, six years old. John, I'm going to pull you in here. You've done uh, quite a bit of coaching, I know. That's part of your post-basketball life, too. What do you think is a great drill for those young kids to do to really kind of improve their game? I think it just ultimately comes down to can you can you handle the ball and can you can you shoot the ball with decent form? You know, and I think so many kids are chucking up shots from so far and, you know, ultimately their their shots all jacked up when they get older. Um so starting in close, develop good shot form, and then obviously be able to to go both directions and dribble the ball with both hands. It's probably the key. All right, Travis, let's hit back to you. I want to talk about individual opponents. Give me a dude you played against that was even better than advertised. I, I, I played against, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of great players in the NBA. I played uh, against Sam Cassell, who had a a good run with the Bucks, but after that, oh yeah, and it wasn't very athletic, uh, but was, and, and liked to talk. And that was intimidating, especially because I was younger at the time. But even when he was in Milwaukee, those guys would we'd kind of go uh, over there sometimes. They'd come to campus and we in the summer times and play. Uh, but I remember getting matched up with him in in the NBA, and uh, he just killed me. And it was all like so basic. He was like six two, six three, but he had an incredible like mid range post up fadeaway, and I couldn't do anything about it. And uh, he was something somebody that I thought always got. Uh, was kind of underappreciated, even though he liked to talk. So he was always uh, front and center. But I thought he was an incredible, incredible talent. All right, then give me a guy whose game you really respected. Maybe a guy that was a little bit more under the radar who really brought it on the court. You know, a guy that you played against and you were like, damn, I got to go with this guy for 40 minutes today or 48 minutes, whatever the case may be. But maybe people didn't understand how good that dude was. I don't know if this guy was... He was really good, but it was it was Nate Robinson, and he was a problem for me only because uh, for most of his career, my career in the NBA, he was with the Knicks, and they just gave him free reign to do whatever he really wanted. So it was really difficult to guard because there was really no structure to what he was doing, and he was quick, he was fast, he could shoot, he was explosive, and I had you know I wasn't. I wasn't going to stop him. And so when he got it going without any 
uh, sort of restrictions, it was very, very difficult to guard. All right. And finally, Travis, the book really paints you as the everyman. Here you are, this, you know, this dude who grows up in the middle of Wisconsin. You're, you're you know, you're not six eight with this long wingspan. You're six one. You're rather easily blended into the to a crowd. How often in your life have you played the Billy Hoyle role from White Men Can't Jump, jumped into a pickup game and just roasted dudes? Yeah, that's fun. It, it's it, no, it's fun. Because uh, no unfortunately you look like any now, other dude in my pickup game. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Right? <laughs> oh yeah 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 i mean i when i play pickup now everybody you know the guys i'm playing with all know who i am so i don't really find too many uh random pickup games but back in the day yeah i mean i could blend in with with anybody you know like you said i'm a six foot white guy uh you know very unassuming so uh you know that's what i you know that's it's funny you brought that up because that's what i always took pride in. even when i was a little kid you, you know you go into these environments where you're playing against bigger faster stronger guys that that are really talented they look at me and they're like well obviously he can't play uh because look at him he's small he's short he's uh, skinny uh and that's, I think, where it first started, where like, I'll sh- I can show you that, you know, I can play this game at a high level and I'm going to compete. And, you know, ultimately my team is going to beat your team. And I took a lot of pride in that. And, and I think that's the only thing that ever really mattered to me was, you know, the fact of, you know, sports in basketball or any sport, it's it's pretty bl- black and white. It's, it's either you win or you lose. And, and I never took, you know, there's no, there's no really such thing as a moral victory when it came to, to winning and losing. You know, John, you kind of giggled when I asked that question, but I'm curious, like in the course of writing this book or even just from your own personal experience with Travis, did you see a a moment where someone really underestimated him and then they paid for it? I mean, I just think like we, we kind of talk about some of this at the beginning of the book, but this goes back to like 1999. Travis is a nobody and he's playing for, uh, he's playing in the summer Nike peach jam. So at the time there weren't multiple AU tournaments, there was one. And basically there was a team from every state. So you had guys like Eddie Curry and Tyson Chandler and, you know, all these amazing players like playing to win this championship. And, um, you know, game after game, Travis is matched up against, again, bigger, faster, more athletic kids from, from big cities across the country with, you know, big rankings next to the name. And um, it's just like win after win after win. And all of a sudden, you know, Wisconsin Playground Warriors win the whole thing. And people are like, who the heck are these guys? And so, um, you know, I talked to the team that they they beat, Illinois Warriors, who had, it was like eight Division One recruits on that team. Yeah. And uh, some of the things that were said were like, you know, who the F is on this team? I mean, it was just, they were, they were kind of just shocked at the outcome of losing to this Wisconsin team in the championship with essentially zero ranked players at the time. And obviously, um, you know, those guys would be ranked in a hurry uh, following that tournament. Hey, thanks, John and Travis, for playing along with that. Again, the book is No Fear in the Arena, Travis Diener's Unrivaled Leadership and Competitive Drive by John Wilcom. John, Travis, thanks for joining us here on the 199 Podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for listening to the 199 Podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. Five stars only, like the basketball camp. We also have links to all of 199 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time, 